Well, good morning. And it's great to see you guys. Now, since I was with you last time, one of the most significant events has happened this November. I mean, it, incredible, actually. It's something that happened that uh, there are a ton of people that are overjoyed. There are other people that are underjoyed, to say the least. I happen to be one of those who's overjoyed. Because for the first time since 1908, the Chicago Cubs <laughs> have won the World Series. How cool is that? I, uh, <laughs> you're a little nervous there for a minute, weren't you? It's just the, um, I used to live within walking distance of Wrigley Field and became a cubby. I've never departed from that path. I was in Harry Carey's choir that would sing with the Cubs. And so, man, I, I know other things of note probably have happened in this country uh, in November as well. But tell you what, it was a wonderful thing. In fact, I was reminiscing, reflecting about the Cubs winning and went back. You know, our hearts were broken many times as Cubs fans, but one of the most uh, pronounced moments of breaking was back in 2003 in the National League Championship Series. And this poor guy named Steve Bartman, uh, who was a diehard Cubs fan sitting on the front row of the next to the last game. It was game six of this National League Championship Series, Cubs and the Marlins in Wrigley Field. Cubs had a, a three to one lead or three to two lead in the series. And, uh, but they were three to zero up in the game. It was the top of the eighth inning. There was one out and a fly ball, foul ball, but still within play a little bit, heads over on the left, left field side. Moses Lou, the outfielder went over to, to catch it and Steve Barton reached out to take this souvenir interfered with it. Moses Luke wasn't able to catch it. The ball fell down, wasn't an out. And at that point, Alou got all upset. Everybody got upset. The Cubs unraveled. Eight runs were scored in that inning. They lost that game and then went on to lose the series. And I, I wondered what, I wonder how Steve Bartman's doing. And so as a result of the Cubs winning, I actually looked that story up and I ran across this quote from him back, this was many years ago, when he was asked about this. And he said, well, you know what? I had my eyes glued on the approaching ball the entire time. And I was so caught up in the moment, listen, I was so caught up in the moment that I did not even see Moses Lou, much less that he may have had a play on the ball. Had I thought for one second that the ball was playable or had I seen Alou approaching, I would have done whatever I could to get out of the way and give Alou a chance to make the catch. What was he saying? He said, you know what? I missed the big picture. And because I missed the big picture, some bad stuff happened. What we're trying to do is help you with the big picture. Tipping point is the immediate issue that you, know, you might be dealing with, but this is the big picture. John's written an amazing book. You can see he talks, lays a foundation, then provides a biblical framework, basically the big picture. In this series this month, we're calling it the stories that bind us. We're looking at the story of Northland. That's the immediate. And we're trying to draw you out 
and as we have been for a while, from our individual stories and realize there's a bigger story called Northland. Today, we're going to go even bigger. And it's not just about us as individuals, it's not just about who we are, but it's us understanding who we are as individuals in the context of Northland, who we are as Northland in the context of a far bigger picture. But before we go any further, let's acknowledge who the real teacher is. It's not me, so let's talk to him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you want to lead us along a path in which we understand the big picture. We've all got stuff that we brought in with us to this auditorium or if we're watching online to wherever we're watching. We've all got the things we're dealing with on our, the individual pages of our story, so to speak. And so often we get consumed with the immediate to the point that we miss the bigger picture. And as a result of missing the bigger picture, we get the present moment confused. I need to hear from you about my story. My friends need to hear from you about theirs. But we all need to hear from you about our story corporately. So would you speak? We're listening. I ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Once upon a time. Don't you love that phrase? Since we were little kids. Once upon a time. We love stories. And the good ones, they might not begin with that word, but they begin with that thought. We love pouring into these books and finding out, okay, what happened? Once upon a time. What's your favorite story? We all have them. Great expectations. War and peace. It's a little short story. The Great Gatsby. The Iliad. The Odyssey, Crime and Punishment, Brothers Karamazov, Tale of Two Cities, To Kill a Mockingbird, Lord of the Rings. What's your favorite story? In the galaxy far, far away, Star Wars. Moby Dick. You guys remember libraries? And if there's a librarian here, I apologize for the heart attack that I'm causing right now. I love books. I said, well, you're certainly not acting like it right now. Actually, when I was in college, this is long before the internet, it was actually before electricity, I went to the library. Somebody had recommended a book. I went, there was only one copy of it. I was relieved. Checked it out, got into it, and it was, it was one of these, it truly was a page turner. 
I was, I was staying up late. I was in college and there are times I was saying, forget the studies. I want to find out what, what happens. And as I'm getting near the end, I'm realizing there's a lot of stuff that's got to be resolved. There's some things that happening. And I started feeling, you know, how many pages were left. And I was getting kind of concerned because I was thinking, man, a lot's going to have to be wrapped up here in a, just a few pages. And to my shock, at one point, finally, I turned the page and realized that someone had torn out quite a few pages at the very end of the story. I couldn't believe it. I'm, I'm left hanging. There's, again, there's no internet. I can't look up. Didn't, anybody I knew, they didn't know how it ended. The library had only had one book. I had to wait a while before I, I finally figured out and found what had happened. And I thought, you know, whoever tore those pages out, the pages were significant to them. Why? Because they were part of a bigger story. That's why the pages were significant to them. But I also thought about what, okay, did they hold on to the page? Or did they just put it down somewhere? I mean, did somebody else find a page? What if somebody would have found one of those pages that didn't know the story. What? Doesn't make any sense. You see, pages belong in a book. That's when you appreciate the pages because you got the big picture. And if I rip a page out of a book and I know nothing of the story, yeah, I mean, there are some things that might be a little intriguing, but bottom line, it doesn't make sense. You got any of those things going on in your life? Anybody here ever had a sentence that you felt like, what's up with this sentence? What's up with this paragraph in my life? What's up with this event, this high, this low? We always deal with it. Sting wrote a, a, a song long ago called The Book of My Life. And he says, you know what? The pages are numbered, but I don't know what they mean. A guy named Shakespeare wrote a rap, just kidding, called Macbeth. And then he said, that our, our, life is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury. And it signifies nothing. That's what life looks like when you just got a page and you don't know the bigger picture. What's in my hand? Okay, movie buffs. What's in my hand? Not enough of a hint? All right. I'll open up my left hand. There's a blue pill. What's in my right hand? A red pill. Who am I? Morpheus. Who am I talking to? Neo. What are we talking about? The Matrix. Let's just have a moment of silence for the Matrix. Great story, 1999. Can't believe it was that long ago. 
What was going on? And if you're thinking, oh, don't tell me, I need to see it. It's been out almost two decades. Sorry, too late. So Neo is come to Morpheus, who's the one who's wise. And he says, I'm giving you a red pill, a blue pill. You've got a choice. If you take the blue pill, you can go back to sleep. Just go back into your tunnel vision. Go back into your blindness regarding what the big story is. But he says, you take this red pill and I'll show you just how deep the rabbit hole goes. What Morpheus was doing is saying, you take the red pill and I'll show you where this fits. Why do we love stories? Is it because we're, we suspect that we're in one? But we just can't quite figure it out what it means. C.S. Lewis is one of the greatest apologists of the 20th century. Apologist mean he didn't apologize for Christianity, he defended it. But he took this journey from atheism to agnosticism to deism, to theism, to biblical Christianity. And finally take that, took that last step in which he became, in his words, the most reluctant convert in all of England. And the pivotal moment for him was a conversation that he had. Whenever I've been in Oxford, I've always made a point of taking a walk along the Cherwell. It's this river that goes through Oxford and there's this this walk that's known as Addison's Walk. And the reason I do it is because I know of a conversation that happened long ago between C.S. Lewis and his good friend J.R.R. Tolkien, the author of Lord of the Rings, and another friend, Hugo Dyson. And Lewis was right on the verge of this embrace of Christianity, but he, was, he still hadn't stepped over the line, so to speak. And they got into this conversation about myth. Lewis was a classical, literature professor, an Oxford Don. And he was lamenting how all of these great myths, he says, it's too bad that none of them are true. And Dyson and Tolkien walked him down a logical path of realizing, but the ultimate myth, and using the, myth, the word myth in the classical sense, not fairy tale, but the ultimate myth, meaning epic, is true. In fact, all of the other stories that we love, we love them because of the great story that they reflect. Frederick Buechner writes this about the gospel. The gospel is a world of magic and mystery, of deep darkness and flickering starlight. It's a world where terrible things happen and wonderful things too. It's a world where goodness is pitted against evil, love against hate, order against chaos. In a great struggle where often it's hard to be sure who belongs to which side because appearances are endlessly deceptive. Yet for all its confusion and wildness, 
This world of the gospel is one where the battle goes ultimately to the good, who live happily ever after. And where in the long run, everybody, good and evil alike, becomes known by his true name. That is the fairy tale of the gospel. With, of course, one crucial difference from all other fairy tales, which is that the claim made for it is that it is true, that it not only happened once upon a time, but has kept on happening ever since and is happening still. Hmm. Hmm. The gospel is not just proposition, it's plot. It's page. And it's about us as pages. Pages don't belong out here on the floor. Pages belong in the story. At the end of the two towers, it's a book J.R. Tolkien wrote after the movie came out. And just kidding. But Sam and Frodo have this conversation where Sam says, I wonder what sort of tale we've fallen into, Mr. Frodo. In the movie version, he says, do you think they'll ever write us into tales and stories? Do you think your life will ever be written in to a tale or a story or yours? It already has. You and I are meant for a larger story. In fact, this is not a religious handbook, the scriptures. It's a divine drama. And at the epicenter of that drama is some of what we're doing right now. It's called church. But amazingly, we so focus in on, well, I'll just go through the routine on maybe a Sunday and we miss the bigger picture. We do that Steve Barton thing. We just focus on the immediate so much that we, we miss the overall context. In fact, if you were to take a look through scripture, if I could provide an overall outline of the drama that's in here, I divided into five acts. Act one would be in Genesis chapter one and two where God creates something absolutely beautiful for his glory, for our good, for our fulfillment as human beings. At the first part of chapter three, Satan comes along and he wants to mar what God has done. And so he feeds Adam and Eve a lie just as he feeds you and me a lie. And the lie is this, you don't need God and you don't need to be a part of what God is doing in order for you to find fulfillment, you can find it on your own. And God had a choice at that moment, at the beginning of act two there in Genesis three, to destroy this and start over, but he instead elected to say, you know what? This is gonna be part of the great story, my redemption of this, my restoration of men and women into the great story. 
And so you see throughout the Old Testament prophecies about this Messiah that would come. He was promised right in Genesis 3 and then typologies and pictures and previews of him throughout the Old Testament. One of my favorite is, is in Ezekiel 37. I think I've talked with you about it before where the Messiah gets a vision of the valley of, of, of dry bones. These human beings that have said, God, I don't need your glory. I don't need your authority. I don't need your leadership to live. I can do it on my own. And the lie of our sin and our rebelliousness is when that happens, we die. Just like the leaf pulled off of a tree, a page pulled out of the great book, when I rip myself out of God's story, I die. Oh yeah, there, you can still find on this page right here, you can still find beauty and laughter and love and creativity. But it's muted, it's truncated. And then in Matthew 1, in the Gospels, we see the arrival of the hero. All the stories that we love, they have elements of the great story. And the hero arrives. God becomes flesh. The author enters the story. And that goes through the first chapter of the book of Acts. And then in Acts chapter 2, something momentous happens in this story. And it continues on up to Revelation through the book of Jude. And in fact, that's where you and I are right now. That's what's happening right here. We're, we're in the middle of Act 4. Then Act 5 is Revelation. It's where all things are restored. So I want to back up, though, to Act 4. And look at what happened at the beginning of Act 4. And it's something that you and I are still a part of. So the disciples, after Jesus was, was killed, crucified, after he rose again, before he ascended to heaven there in Acts, Acts 1, he tells the disciples, you guys hang around, I'm going to send my spirit. He'd already taught them about that in the upper room discourse. I'm going to send my spirit to you. I'm going to breathe life back into you. That's the primary role that the Holy Spirit has. John 6, the Spirit gives us life. The Spirit is what makes us alive. It's that life with a capital L. It's not just heart beating, lung breathing, but it's something far deeper where my humanity is restored. And so they're waiting. And in Acts 2, the disciples are together and all of a sudden, it, 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 it sounded like, we're told, in Luke, who's writing Acts, this is ver volume two of his history. Volume one was the Gospel of Luke. Volume two is, is Acts, the Acts of the Apostles. This is, the guy's a physician, he's very detail-oriented, and so he makes sure, brings in the, the eyewitness account saying, everybody heard this sound like a rushing wind coming in. In fact, so much so it drew people's attention. And people, it, it, was, it was during Pentecost, so people from all over, came. All nationalities were represented. And these witnesses looked at the disciples and the, it looked like tongues of fire, individual flames were coming upon each person. And as a result, these people were speaking. And from all these nationalities, what they were baffled by is how are these Galileans speaking our language? Everybody was hearing about God in their own language. Some people joked and said, it's because they're drunk. Others were taking it very seriously. So Peter, he gets up to explain. This is his first sermon. He gets up and he explains to them 
A lot of what I just told you brings up the prophet Joel about how God prophesied that his spirit would once again come upon us and bring us to life. Verse 22 of Acts 2, he says, fellow Israelites, he keeps going. He says, listen carefully to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man thoroughly accredited by God to you, the miracles and wonders and signs that God did through him are common knowledge. This Jesus, following the deliberate and well thought out plan of God, was betrayed by men who took the law into their own hands and was handed over to you. And you pinned him to a cross and killed him. But God untied the death ropes. I love that. This is Eugene Peterson's uh, version of the message. But God untied the death ropes and raised him up. Death was no match for him. David said it all. He put it this way. I saw God before me all the time. Nothing can, quoting from the Psalms, nothing can shake me. He's, at, he's right by my side. I'm, I'm, I'm glad from the inside out, ecstatic. I, I've pitched my tent in the land of hope. I, I know you'll never dump me in Hades. I'll never even smell the stench of death. You've got my feet on the life path with your face shining, sun joy all around. And Peter then continues. After reading that passage from Psalms, reciting it, he would have been doing. He says, dear friends, let me be completely frank with you. Our ancestor David is dead and buried. His tomb is in plain sight today. But being also a prophet and knowing that God has solemnly sworn that a descendant of his would rule his kingdom, seeing far ahead, he talked to the resurrection of the Messiah. No trip to Hades, no stench of death. This Jesus, God raised up. And every one of us is here is a witness to it. Then raised to the heights at the right hand of God and receiving the promise of the Holy Spirit from the Father, he poured out the spirit he had just received. That is what you see and hear. That's what's going on here. For David himself did not ascend to heaven, but he did say, God said to my master, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a stool for resting your feet. All Israel, then know this. There's no longer room for doubt. God made him master and Messiah. This Jesus whom you killed on a cross, cut to the quick. Those who were there listening asked Peter and the other apostles, brothers, brothers, so now what do we do? And Peter said, change your life. Turn to God and be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. So your sins are forgiven. Receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is targeted to you and to your children, but also to all who are far away, whomever, in fact, our master God invites. Do you know what Peter is saying there? When they say, what do we do? Peter says, take the red pill. Get the big picture. Bring the page of your life and submit once again to God's authorship of you. He went on in this vein for a long time, urging them over and over, get out while you can, get out of the sick and stupid culture, get back into the story of God. In other words, that day about 3,000 took him at his word, were baptized and were signed up. They committed themselves to the teaching of the apostles, the life together, the common meal and the prayers. Everyone was in awe. 
All those wonders and signs done through the apostles and all the believers lived in a wonderful harmony, holding everything in common. They sold whatever they owned and pooled their resources so that each person's need was met. Every aspect of their life was touched by their realization and submission once again to being involved in the great story. They followed the daily discipline of worship in the temple, followed by meals at home. Every meal of celebration, exuberant and joyful as they praised God. People in general liked what they saw, and every day their number grew as God added to those who were being saved. Let me tell you what was happening there. You had these men and women. In fact, in, in the original, in, in Greek, in that passage, there's, there's a theme that comes up several times in a demonstrative way. They started getting together. So this page, and this page, and this page, this page, this page, and this page, this page, this page, and this page, they were together. Listen very carefully. This is church. This is the church. It's not an institution. It's a community of men and women who once again have come together in the great story of God. You talk about good news. Does that mean that I now understand every sentence on my page? No, not yet. But I understand a lot more. And I'm also assured credibly because of the resurrection that one day, even though now I see through a mirror dimly, as the scriptures say, one day I shall see his face to face. But in the meantime, God, as he's writing his story, is calling people out. The ecclesia, that's what the Greek word for church is. The, call, the root is kaleo, kalein, called out. You and I have been called out of death into life. We've been called out of isolation into community. And the church, those men and women who were together and once again being involved in the great story of God, submitting to his authorship. And the church, capital C, is one huge, beautiful, intentional, artistic, redemptive collection of people. But the church, capital C, is for the time being distributed. There's some people over here in, in Longwood, some people distributed here in Oviedo, some people over here in Berlin. And the power of who God is calling us to be is understanding that he's bringing us together to be the church, to once again be actively engaged with the story of God. This is not about an institutional habit on a Sunday. That's not what church is. It's about men and women realizing that their vocations, their hobbies, their relationships have a larger framework. 
And it's not just about me and Jesus saying, okay, I'm going to stay right like this, but now i got Jesus. I'm coming once again into the great story and gaining a context for who I am. So what, what does this look like? What's it look like when we're together? The scriptures have a number of, 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 of words, of images, metaphors to describe what the story of the church looks like. For the dominant ones, I'll just mention them. One, the story of the church looks like the bride of Christ. Our story looks like being a bride. Not just, I'm not bride individually, I'm bride along with you. We're the bride of Christ. We're loved by him. Revelation has the culmination in Revelation chapter 19, verse 7. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. This whole notion of being the bride together, what you and I do is we relate with him together. Sometimes you teach me about his love, sometimes I teach you about his love. We taste his love together. We taste his sacrifice together. But we're, this story doesn't just look like uh, about being a bride. When we're together, we're not only bride, you know what else we are? We're body. Scriptures talk about us being the body of Christ. We've talked about that a lot. Just as one, as one body has many parts, Paul writes, so we're many parts. You've got gifts, you've got gifts, they're different, but we're together. And you know what? We're not going to fully experience and celebrate and be fulfilled by our gifting until we are in community. Big like this, yes, but even more powerfully small, personal, distributed. This church in this neighborhood, this, this collection of pages, this gathering of pages in this office building. What do we do when we're together? We experience his love together as bride. We grow together as body. There's a third word. We reflect him as beacon. Together, we're a beacon in this culture. Over and over and over, you see in scripture, I, I don't know, is anybody here having trouble realizing how dark our culture has become? <laughs> we're we're raveling, unraveling at the seams. Yet God has placed a group of men and women in the midst of all of these pages to say, by his grace, we are loved. So there's an upward aspect to this story. We're connecting in community. There's an inward aspect, but there's an outward aspect. We're being a beacon in word and deed, reflecting who he is. Second Corinthians chapter four. Verse six, he says, for God who said, let light shine out in the darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. Do you know what that's saying? Part of the power of coming to Christ is realizing having his light shine in our hearts to let us know this is what the bigger story is. That's why Jesus says, you're the light of the world. And you're set up on a hill to be a beacon of me, to reflect me. But we're not just bride and body and beacon. This story looks like a battalion as well. A battalion of men and women who understand there is a war going on. A war not against other people, but a war against the enemy who did all of this. 
who destroyed God's creation and isolated men and women. Ephesians chapter six talks about this warfare. We are not warring against flesh and blood. So as a result, before that act five in the, victory, in the great victory that is culminated, the victory has been won, but fighting is still continuing. And so we're little battalions against the enemy. Against the enemy who is, who is wanting to keep people separate and isolated and we say not on our watch. We will be the bride and be loved and walk like loved men and women. We'll be body and we'll cooperate together. We'll be beacon and we'll reflect them together and we will be battalion and we will endure to the very end together. We will overcome, not as individual pages, but it's the community of men and women who've been restored to the great story. When two towers came out, that middle part of the Lord of the Rings trilogy, I went to see it in the theater with my sons. I was gripped by the final scene, so much so that, you know, it was, it was, the internet was around, but it wasn't as advanced as it is now. I mean, these days you can find out what's in a movie before you can go to the movie. Back then, still not there. And there was some dialogue that happened between Sam and Frodo. So the next day, I went back to the theater, bought a ticket, went in, told the guy where I was going. He said, well, that movie's almost done. I said, I know, I know, but I, I'm just wanting to go in. And I don't know if I can say this or not. Maybe the statute's limitations such, because I was, it was, I'm sure it was, I was taking a dictaphone in. Because I wanted to get this before, I didn't, I didn't want to wait a few months till the movie came out on DVD. I wanted to get that dialogue again, and I couldn't write it all down quick enough, so I was going to record it. And so I did. This is what I recorded. If you're part of the production company, I've destroyed that, and uh, everything's fine now. Frodo says, I can't do this, Sam. This is too hard. Guys, I don't think you and I have yet to experience how hard it's going to be to be the body of Christ, to be the bride of Christ, to be the beacon of Christ, to be a battalion of Christ in this culture yet. But he's overcome. He's leading us. But we'll have that temptation to say, I can't do this, just as Frodo said to Sam. And here's what Sam said to Frodo, and this is what I wanted to record and write down. He said, I know, it's all wrong. By rights, we shouldn't even be here, but we are, Mr. Frodo. It's like in the great stories, the ones that really mattered. Full of darkness and danger they were, and sometimes you didn't want to know the end. Because how could the end be happy? How could the world go back to the way it was when so much bad had happened? But in the end, it's only a passing thing, the shadow. Even darkness must pass, a new day will come. And when the sun shines, it will shine out the clear. Those were the stories that stayed with you, Mr. Frodo, that meant something. Even if you were too small to understand why. Uh, but I think I do now understand. I know now. Folks in those stories had lots of chances of turning back, only they didn't. They kept going because they were holding on to something. Mr. Frodo said, what are we holding on to, Sam? 
And Sam says that there's some good in this world, Mr. Frodo, and it's worth fighting for. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, the author, I exhort you as battalions distributed all over the world, keep fighting. I exhort you as bride, keep lavishing love, his love on one another and experience it, keep worshiping. I exhort you in the name of Jesus as body, keep cooperating, keep serving, keep rolling up sleeves. As beacon, let's keep shining. Until one day when that story, once again, is complete and restored. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for your authorship in our lives. Thank you for the gift that you've entrusted to us of grace that brings us back into the story, even in the midst of our rebelliousness. I thank you for the price that you paid, Jesus, a price that you paid to enable us to enter back into this story. And I, I know there's a lot going on in these, these various places where people are watching and in this auditorium because we've all got some sentences in our lives that are weighing us down, some hard things, news from a doctor, financial stuff, um, emotional stuff, relational stuff, it's all there. But would you give us the courage to come together and to see uh, the pages of us individually come together in chapters? As we're about to head back out into the darkness, Would you feed us with the hope of your calling? I ask this in your name for your sake. Amen.